eat them. Yeah. Yeah. So when you were talking, what did you have for breakfast this morning? Nothing. I don't eat breakfast. Why? Because I am a strong human that only needs one meal a day. Understood. Thank you. They said no. I said, give it to me. Give it all to me. (laughs) Give me all the injections. Turn me into a pin cushion. How many did you have? Four vaccinations. All today? Yeah, I had one in my shoulder, one in the back of my arm, one in this shoulder, one in the back of this arm. And you have to do all that for in a green one go. card? <laughs> well, I had to have all those vaccinations for the green card, but I, um, the NHS's system is so shit, it doesn't have everything recorded. And I guess when we had most of our vaccinations done, it was still like paperwork. Just file away in a fucking cabinet somewhere. We're good if you want to hit the buttons. Yeah. Are you rolling? Action. Action, we're live. How's it going, Ollie Rowland? It's going well. Mark Konstantinovic. Bit, uh, bit cold in here. I'm okay. You're going to survive this one? I'll live. Been through worse, Been, been colder. <laughs> <laughs> this is what today's about. Last time we spoke, we touched a little bit about your story as a whole. Mm-hmm. And of all the podcasts I've done so far, I think you're the one that's most unexpected because a lot of people in my circles of music know that we're mates and then they listen to your podcast and they're like, we don't get it. So he used to be a stuntman. Now he like manages like all these people in CTK and Dolly Parton and your story being on sets and throwing yourself off buildings and blowing yourself up as a, as a, you know, you know, a kind of body for hire. Yeah. I want to start right back from what I think is a particularly interesting point about you, which is, all of the stuff you've overcome in life is one of the things that I find quite inspiring. And also when I speak to other people, they find it quite inspiring. Because when you were younger, you were diagnosed with diabetes. Mm-hmm. A lot of people are going to know that feeling. I looked it up earlier. I think one and a half million people roughly a year just in America diagnosed every day. Take me back to what it felt like. How old were you? Talk, talk me through the process when you get that news. How does it feel? So, so I was 17. Um, I was on set of uh, Terry Pratchett's Hogfather. I was doing extra work. I wasn't even doing stunt work at the time. And I was like ridiculously thirsty, um, peeing loads. Uh, my vision went a bit blurry and I was really, really tired. And I left set and I called my dad on the way home and I was like, yeah, I've got all this. Whiz. I can barely read the road signs. Like I'm not sure what's going on. And he jokingly said, sounds like diabetes. Went to the doctor the next day because I still felt the same. Uh, took a blood test. My blood sugar levels was like, in England terms, it was twenty English terms, it was twenty nine, and it's meant to be between four and seven. So it's like, yeah, this isn't good. So did a load more tests, and turned out I had type one diabetes, like out of nowhere. So the type one, for those who don't know, is like the genetic one. Type two is like either um, from being overweight or getting older, you can develop it. But type one's the one I had. Couldn't trace it back in my family. Just randomly one day had it so um because you were you were like at the height of your kind of athletic ability mm-hmm. back at 17 as well it's not like you'd been I'd, smashing the donuts you were nope. it was a complete curveball so type one is pretty much just a genetic predisposition something triggers it and then you're that's it basically yeah i mean we joke about <laughs> the hot sauce incident in new york triggering triggering it with when i was with you um when i drank a bottle of hot sauce but um, yeah, it could be any anything could have triggered it. Um, maybe drinking the bottle. Of hot maybe sauce drinking a bottle of hot help. sauce was <laughs> it wasn't that. the most helpful, but I made forty dollars. So I think it was about twenty eight dollars. Well, don't, don't winning. But um, so yeah, something triggered it anyway. But yeah, I was literally fighting fit. So I just done my like first damn black belt at karate. I was doing all my stunt training. So I was like trampolining and rock climbing and horse riding and swimming and like super fit. So no. No explanation that made sense for it, but um, what's it feel like being a seventeen-year-old kid and having that card dealt? Um, I think it's the same kind of attitude I've had most of my life, which is like, just well, what you can do about it, crack on. Like, there's no, if there's nothing you can do to fix it, then it is what it is. And then being that young, I also buried my head in the sand at that time, and which. You know, ignorance is bliss kind of deal, which was stupid. Um, I just, Why do you, when you say... Because I just chuck an injection in and go, that'll do. I never tested my blood. At the time, there was no kind of constant glucose monitor patches or anything. So it was a finger prick and 
just couldn't be bothered to do it so I didn't do it I just oh, I'll put a bit of insulin in that'll be fine and just kept doing that for till my early 20s because for for people listening taking them through that journey because I mean my knowledge of it I still have so many gaps too but the the idea when you have type 1 diabetes for for those who don't know and correct me if I'm wrong you're you're putting insulin in your body and that's what breaks down the sugar because your body's not creating that anymore is that right exactly right. yeah so you your blood sugar levels you eat anything you uh normally as a healthy human being your pancreas produces insulin it breaks down the sugar breaks down the carbohydrates and that's all good and your mm. blood sugar stays level with me the pancreas stopped working so i need to inject insulin every time i eat to break down the sugar and carbs and all that kind of stuff so as a 17 year old kid you're obviously not at the height of your dietary correct <laughs> like uh, correct. not looking after what you're eating so much you're out drinking quite a lot correct how how did you cope with that and if you throw yourself back to to other people who might be listening at that young age you know being able to kind of learn from your experience what was the process like did you just kind of ignore it like you said earlier mm-hmm. that was a mistake how you ignored it like maybe unpack that a bit so yeah i i did ignore it until like i said my early 20s and the reason I'm regretting it now is kind of like the long-term, um, not damage because I've been able to fix a lot of it, but like the um, diabetic retinopathy, which is where your eyes um, start getting damaged, basically start getting blurry and blurry and blurrier, where the small blood vessels and capillaries start bursting in your eyes. Basically, you're bleeding inside your eye and it starts blocking your vision. <laughs> so the last kind of year or so I've been having, maybe less than a year, I've been having injections in my eyeballs, like two in each eyeball each session um to fix that which is now fixed which is awesome that sounds fucking horrible (laughs) yeah is it it, it as bad as it sounds no no but again it's like the mindset well what you can do about it you've got to do it or you're going to go blind so nothing i can fix or change about it now so this this retinopathy this is something that you you think back from when you were a kid when you were 17 when you're ignoring that mm-hmm. you know being so good with the insulin it's that time when this kind of damages exactly i, I was ignoring doctor's advice and you need to do this or you're going to get this disease and your eyes are going to and your foot's going to fall off and all yeah. this stuff and you're like ah, i'm 17 nothing's going to stop me and no, i'm 20 nothing's going to stop that me Hagen-Dazs, yeah exactly yeah. i'm, I'm going to eat a whole tub of ben and jerry's <laughs> and a domino's pizza and all the other stupid stuff i used to do and a packet of whatever so um but then once I kind of hit 30, just a bit older than 30, then I was like, ah, things started going right. The eyes being really the main one. Um, but yeah, so I wish I'd listened and concentrated a bit more because there was definitely a lot, like I was all about the fun and ignoring it. And I think there's definitely a line where I could still have had fun and not been such an idiot or naive or ignorant or insert correct adjective here. So you, you're speaking to your 17-year-old self now and other people who might be listening who, who are going through the same journey you went to, what's, what's the advice you give to your younger self? Um, I, I wish I'd just tested my blood. I wish I'd just been on it more and tested my blood more. And, and I will say now is a lot easier for new diabetics because you can have like the constant glucose monitor, which I have on the back of my arm. What, can, what is that? How does so it? So it's a little tiny little patch. looks almost like a nicotine patch. Um, it sticks in the back of your arm as a tiny little hair thin needle, which is a sensor, which is, which can move around. It's not solid metal. So it doesn't hurt. And then I can just scan it with my phone and it tells me what my blood sugar level is doing. Whereas before, when I was younger, you had to keep pricking your finger. Your fingers get really sore. You got to make them bleed, and it's a whole thing. And it's like I don't know, I can't be bothered. Mm-hmm. So, and you know, that was a big part of it. Whereas I think if that this technology was around when I was a kid, when I was seventeen, I would have been a, a bit more on it. Um, so yeah, but my older self, I just, just couldn't be bothered to keep pricking my fingers. And also, when you're young, you don't want to carry around all this stuff. You had to have a little pouch with all the testing strips and the needles and the reader itself. You know, it was twice the size of an iPhone, that little pack on its own. And then your phone and then your insulin pen and then, you know, all the other stuff. So, yeah, I was I was definitely an idiot. And I definitely think it's a lot easier now to control and and um, keep an eye on. And since I was kind of in my mid to late 20s, I was a lot more on top. But as soon as I got the glucose monitor on my arm i then was on it a lot more because i can test unlimited amount of times and i need to make my fingers bleed my hands don't get sore you know it's, i don't need to carry anything extra around and i don't care about having a patch on the back of my arm i forget it's even on there so 
But yeah, I wish I'd tested my blood more and just been been a bit more on it at least and a bit more responsible. Do you think there is this way up with, with you? I mean, obviously I've known you for so many years, but do you think there's a way up where that kind of like nonchalant, don't give a shit attitude, just going to crack on, you know, can't control it, whatever, caution to the wind. There's, there's some benefit in, in that, isn't there? Because mm-hmm. even from a young age with that diagnosis, you strangely kind of went from strength to strength early on and you started to say, there's no, there's nothing that should stop me doing anything I want to do, whether that would be driving a motorbike to the Arctic Circle or going on these ridiculous trips where, you know, you wouldn't have any medical support out in the wild or, you know, I'm interested to go through this story. And I think the angle for me, which I find really interesting is I can only imagine other people at 17 who might not have that same attitude, who get diagnosed, who who are impacted a lot heavier mentally and then maybe don't know about other people who are diabetics but still manage to go and live mm-hmm. life and do all of these crazy things. So on on that note, when you start to swing back to that age after your diagnosis, what was one of the first like adventures that you went on where you started to think, well, how am I going to kind of cope with this being diabetic? Um, <clears throat> I think just to start with that, the first thing where which i think helped my mentality was when i had i met with a diabetic doctor after soon after i'd been diagnosed like within a week and uh told him i was training to be a stuntman i wanted to be a stuntman as my job and uh he said oh no you can't do that you need to get an office job you can't be diabetic and be doing anything active and that that's straight just like mm-hmm. right. absolutely like no, you, you can't do that. And it was like a red flag to a bull. And I was like, okay, hold my beer, watch this. And that that was probably the. Why st- are you drinking beer in your doctor's? <laughs> in the doctor's that was probably the, that was probably the start of it because that annoyed me because I was like, well, you're not going to tell me what I can and can't do. I don't. Yeah. But and then and then to be fair, the nurses I met with were a lot more down to earth and go, no, you can do everything. You've just got to, you know, be wise with it. But it shouldn't stop you doing anything. And I was like, right, that's what I'm going to stick to and live by. So then fast forward, so I was 17 then, and then when I was 20, uh, I booked to do my first, so I'd done a, a couple of film jobs, actually no, I'd done my first big film job, which was Robin Hood, um, and then myself and Frank, who we went to school with, Frank sent me a link to the Mongol Rally, which was, we take an old inappropriate car from London to Mongolia, and drive it the whole way, and I was like, that looks pretty cool. Um, and then Robin Hood came along at the right time that I had a load of money coming in and hadn't spent it on anything. I was like, let's, let's go do this adventure. What were you doing on, on Robin, Robin Hood? What was your... When I first started, I was a horse groom, like, so just helping get the horse. And I had no horse experience. Just getting help getting the horses ready. Just and winging it. Just winging it, pretending I know what I was doing. I know I obviously got caught out and I'm, I was having um, the stunt boys were giving me riding lessons and... Um, so I rode a little bit on it. I was looked after the horses. Um, I got to do a few cool things. I was in a, one of the buildings that they burnt down and did some cool stuff like that. It was my, it was my first toe dip in the stunt world and working with the boss who I worked with for about eight years after that for the Marvel films and stuff. Um, but yeah, that was my kind of first learning movie, I guess, if you will, where I started getting used to everything. And you took that money and you bought a Hillman Imp. I bought a 1974 Hillman Imp. Mm-hmm. Uh, that didn't run. Um, we, my dad went and picked it up with me in a tra- on a trailer. We brought it back to the, the, my parents' house. And then when Frank was ever back from uni, he'd come around and we'd try fixing it, getting it ready to go. And then summer 20, 2009, we set off from Goodwood Racetrack in London and drove, started driving to Mongolia. I mean... Is that the point to to take something that just barely works? Is that the is that the, the whole idea? Is that the is, whole experience? The whole experience. The, so the adventurists of the company that run these adventures and their whole kind of ethos ethos is you take an inappropriate vehicle on an inappropriate adventure, knowing you're going to break down, you're going to get stuck, because then you have stories to tell. Because you're going to meet locals to help you get out of it, or you have some insane story, which I now have like many of from all these trips, and um, so that's the whole kind of concept of it what about on because there's so much stuff to go through and i know that you've skipped past it give us one from that trip so you're taking a car from london you're driving it all the way to mongolia what's one of the highlights that happens on that on that journey for you 
Um, there was, yeah, there was a lot. Um, so, I mean, our car was terrible. Just to put things into perspective, we left Goodwood Racetrack and we broke down twice on the way to Dover. The brakes failed and the battery failed. And then um, we were driving from Calais to Paris and we totally just everything, all the electrics turned off in the car on the way down to Paris on the middle of the motorway. And so that was the, that was the first day one of the trip. So the car was totally inappropriate. And then um, we were in Ukraine. This is probably my favorite story from the whole thing. We were in Ukraine and Frank's visa hadn't been processed properly and the dates were wrong. So we were like, we had to spend, we were trying to get it sorted. So we get into Kiev and um, we park up in the town center and our cars got like um, vinyls all over it. that have our like, website and go donate to our charity and all that kind of stuff and so it drew a lot of attention so we were off getting lunch whatever we were doing and um i wrote a message at the time it was like facebook wasn't even really a thing like on our website uh what did you used to call them I remember, like forum i guess or yeah yeah post yeah, board yeah. or whatever wrote like we're in ukraine in kiev we need some help if anyone's here that speaks ukrainian and english that can help us mm. please reach out here's my mobile number and then that evening, we're at our hostel that we'd, we'd, uh, we were staying in, and I get a call from a Ukrainian number. And it's a guy called Bogdan, who's seen our car in the town square or in the city centre and taken some photos and gone home and gone on our website and seen the message. And he's like, oh, I, I speak English and I'm Ukrainian. So calls me, takes us out to dinner, really nice chap. I've been speaking to him a bit recently, actually, because of everything going on over there. And... Um, Takes us to dinner, takes us around. We explain our problem. We need to get Frank's visa uh, fixed so we can get into Russia earlier. Otherwise, we were stuck in Ukraine for like two weeks longer than we needed to be. Um, and so he says, yep, yeah, that's fine. I'll pick you up in the morning. And I'll take you over to the Russian embassy. So, okay, because he speaks Russian as well. Like, perfect. So he goes to help us out, takes over the Russian embassy. Nothing they can do about it. He's like, okay, I've got a plan. I can get you an apartment really cheap. We'll just stay in Kiev and enjoy Kiev for a few days. Then you can drive over to the border, stay with my mother. My friends are over there. And then as soon as you can cross, then you can go into Russia. Okay. Sounds like you're about to get like traffic to something. But like, <laughs> He was, well, he very much was, is, is a very, very just nice, yeah. nice chap, family man. And uh, he was interested in the car and the whole idea of it all. Um, and I have no reason to believe otherwise. <laughs> and... Uh, um, <laughs> So we so the next day he sets us up in an apartment that was like the equivalent of staying over Times Square or Leicester Square, like the middle of Kiev, where like oh. everything happens. And we were paying like twenty dollars a night. It was nothing, and it should have been a lot more. And it had it, you know, it was a great apartment. So we stayed there for a few days, and then um, said our goodbyes to Bogdan, and he, you know, he took us out. We hung out with him and his wife quite a lot, Yulia. And then he sent us on a way to head towards his mum's house on the border of Ukraine and Russia. So we drive over there. And as we're pulling into this little town, tiny little town, um, a big Nissan Patrol 4x4 that's all done up for off-roading kind of skids in front of our car and blocks us from moving. In the middle of like a three-lane highway going to the town, um, this, guy, this older guy jumps out and this young, uh, young lady jumps out and... Uh, she comes up and starts talking to us in English. And she's a translator hired by this guy who's a friend of Bogdan's from back in Kiev. Right. And he said, Bogdan called me through the translator he's got with him. Bogdan called me and said to look after you guys, take you to his mum's house and make sure you're good. Oh, like, okay. Right. Okay. Um, great. These are really lovely people. We were so uh, trusting and naive. And, and I will say we had no reason to not. Yeah, think otherwise yeah. but looking back and telling the story back everyone's like are you mental no yeah, no one's yeah, that nice yeah. so he takes us to bogdan's mum's house um meet her she's lovely and then two more of bogdan's friends who also know this other guy are there waiting for us there's a uh, and this is where you get robbed <laughs> not yet well no not at all it, it never <laughs> happened so one of them's like big muscly roided guy and others like a big huge just massive guy and they're there, and um, our car had started to mess up a bit on the way to this town. So they said, oh, one of our friends is a mechanic. We can drop your car off there and leave it there for a few days to get fixed. I'm like, okay, fine. Go and drop it off this random personal garage, mm -hmm. not like an actual business. Meet the guy. 
doesn't speak any English and we kind of point to what's wrong and, and off we go. Hang out with Bogdan's friends for a few days. You know, they take us all over the place, go go-karting, go and like these nice dinners. We didn't pay for a thing. These guys were paying for everything. Um, then we go and uh, we go and pick the car up and we go out to a restaurant that evening. One of the guys eats a pint glass in front of me. <laughs> a glass like you're drinking out of. Must have been a, so, like a fake one, isn't it? Nope. So we're all doing we're all doing shots. <laughs> we're all doing shots of this. <laughs> literally like literally you... that. And he he just picks it up and just bites the rim and just crunches the glass up and then just starts chewing it. Yeah, it was mad. It was mad. And so we're drinking... And, it, and how sure are you there wasn't like a sugar... hundred percent. fake sugar. hundred percent. It came over from the barman to our table. Like he didn't just <laughs> pull it out of nowhere. We're doing shots of this drink that's like their delicacy or whatever. And he has a pint of it, right. downs the pint of the, lick, the liquor that we're doing shots of, and then eats yeah, his pint the, glass or half glass. of it, not all of it. And then I get my camera out. So I filmed it. I said, do that again. I film him doing it. So I've got footage of him eating this pint glass. Just eating. It. Anyway, mad. Then weirdly, like, we, we, didn't fi- we hadn't even finished dinner. And then the main guy who had been in the Nis- Nissan Patrol a few days earlier, he goes, we go. I'm like, okay. He's like, we go now. Don't tell you where. Or- nope. Didn't, we didn't pay for anything. We stood up. We all go outside. Well, at this point, we'd met uh, the Irish guys that I ended up finishing the Mongol Rally with. So we went in a convoy. They had a, a little two-seater Nissan pickup truck. We had our Hillman Imp. And then we had the Nissan Patrol in front. And then the other two guys, they had their own Subaru or whatever, was following us behind in like a convoy. Mm. So we're following the, the Nissan Patrol. We start going through the woods. And like, we're meant to be heading to a main border between Ukraine and Russia. And you, you don't and have the car with you? We, we're back in our car oh, now. Okay, back in the We've car got now. our car back. It's but you're basically, you've got no idea where you're going. You're following these. Well, it's meant to be the border, but we're right. in the middle of nowhere, middle of the woods in Ukraine. Like, this is not a busy main road. Right. And so we're shitting it. We're like, what the fuck do we, you know, do we just keep following? What do we do? This is weird. We pull up to this tiny little outpost and it's all gate and fenced and it is a border. And we go in there and our, both of our visas were wrong because they had a, um, like it was a clerical error. It was like, it was a, missing a stamp or something. Right? It was. It said like it was a transport visa, and we should have been on a, a holiday visa or so, whatever it was. It was something stupid like that. So, the guy, I can't I remember his name. It was something stereotypical like Vlad. Um, but he uh, he told the girl just to go out back. This is the girl that works at the border. He walks around the desk and goes on the computer himself. He stamps our passports, gives us them back. Walks back round again and go, okay, you're good to go. And so, okay. And then um, they tell us that one of their friends in Russia will meet us in was it Volgograd or I think it was the first city in Russia that we went to from there. So he's like, go there and meet our friend and they'll look after you. Well, okay, fine. So we drive over the border through no man's land into Russia. We spend, it took us like six, six hours. It was like midnight through like 6 a.m. to get through the Russian border. We stopped for a nap. And then we drive into the city, which is about another two, three hour drive. And then this was, this was, so we were driving in and then this blacked out Mercedes S-Class pulls in front of us. And again, in the middle of the road, stopping traffic. The guy jumps out, me and Frank jump out and he goes, Ollie, Frank? We're like, yeah. He goes, follow, follow. We're like, okay. So we get back in our car again, <laughs> naively, ignorantly, whatever, following this, this random man we've never met before. Drives through the cities, running red lights. We turn up at this place. We we kind of go through the other side of the city. I mean, he's running red. What? Just yeah. going yeah. and straight through junction. Yeah, he's got no number plates on his car. Everyone else does. He has no number plates on his car. We we get to this place. This huge fenced-in kind of compound. And like, what the fuck? So we we park up, and they say, "Yep, just leave the car there." And like very much, leave the car exactly there. I'm like, okay. We go in. He's taking us to a brothel, a big compound brothel. And we're like, which we didn't realize, again, idiot, young, 20-something-year-olds. We go in, and they say, oh, yeah, we've got a room ready for you. And so there's like four beds in a room. We went up there, kind of got settled. Like, should we go down to the bar at the hotel? I think it was just a normal hotel-type deal. Go down there, and there's all stripper poles in the hotel. Right? And, was, and as we'd come downstairs, sat in the garden in the courtyard, were all these, like, stunningly beautiful Eastern European ladies. And we're like, this, this isn't a hotel, is it? And in our... 
wimpiness, scared of female mindset. We just went and hid in our room for a bit. And then the guy who had met us earlier came and knocked on the door. I said, do you guys want to go for dinner? We'll take you out to dinner. So, okay, fine. And you're not asking why. Nope. Is there not one point where you're like, what is this about? Like, why are you spending this money entertaining us? You've got us, cro- like... I think we were asking each other that, like, what's going on? This is crazy. Was there air flight intimidation? Of, of- yeah, for sure. Yeah. And, uh, like, but also curiosity. Yeah, yeah. Fair. I guess. We're like, oh, free stuff. Like, all right. Curious Ollie comes in. Curious Ollie comes into play. So we, um, so we get in his car. No, yeah, we get in his car and he takes all four of us out. We turn up at a restaurant that's closed. He bangs on the door. Someone answers, lets us in. Restaurant is closed. Gets the table, gets us the menu, whatever you guys want. Just order whatever you want. It's like, okay, sweet. So we order whatever we want and have some wine and, and whatever. Then he takes us back over to the brothel. Um, and we go in, go back in our room and stay the night. And then we leave the next morning. We're like, right, let's, we need to get going and make up the time we lost in Ukraine. Um, and, and we get in the car and, and we just leave. And we didn't pay anything to stay in the hotel, to go to the restaurant, to stay with Bogdan's mum, to any of the other stuff we did. Didn't pay a penny. And looking back since then and telling this story, people have gone, well, you smuggled something from Ukraine to Russia. The like, first thing that comes to mind is your whole, like chassis must have been stuffed to the brim full of like 10 million dollars worth of whatever it is yeah heroin cocaine they've it, just stitched you up because that makes sense to me it's like if you find a couple of tourists who are driving across the border and you just go yeah come stay with my mum meet him go to this brothel have dinner and you're just like yeah all right do you reckon you were do you think you actually had the only reason i think against it is bogdan was such a nice the first guy we met such a nice lovely dude and i've spoken to him since i'm friends with him on facebook like, that's the only thing I think. Every other part of that story and everyone else we met, I'm like, yeah, we smuggled drugs or guns or something. Like, But Bogdan was so nice and helpful. And it also, as you travel through Europe and you kind of head east, like, everyone is helpful on the whole. As in, like, a lot more helpful than you get in England or America in so general. one or two things. It's either the fact that, because we're so used to English culture, as soon as you leave, you realise that actually people are quite nice. Yes. Or it's two, which is you've just been dealing with the mafia for... Yeah, I was dealing with the Ukrainian and Russian mafia and smuggling <laughs> things in my 1972 Hillman Imp or whatever it was. So that was probably, my, that was probably my best story from the Mo- Mongol rally, I think. And then, and then how it kind of ended kind of ended for us we were going through kazakhstan on this old dirt road and the car literally broke in half it literally the chassis and body bent right all the windows popped out because of the way the body had bent the gearbox opened up on the floor we got towed i think it was like for 13 hours through the desert in kazakhstan um on like it's not even a road Mm. it it was a road maybe like 50 years earlier so it's just full of potholes that the whole car would disappear into like not exaggerating um, we got pulled over by the police on that road and they were stationed like halfway and basically said, you either pay me, I think it was like $100 or I'm taking you back the way you've come to the police station, like six hours back that way. So we had to pay the bribes and do all the stuff. And then we kind of got to this city in, in Kazakhstan and I think Frank was kind of over it at this point. Um, and so we took, we disposed of the imp, like took it to the police station and whatever and signed it all over to the Kazakh government or whatever we did and then he uh, Frank flew home and I jumped in this two-seater pickup truck with Ralph and Donal the two Irish boys and we we did the rest of the trip in you made in it that. all the way to, to mm-hmm. Mongolia because so, I, I was just trying my geography is not too good but I didn't realize that you went through Russia to get to Mongolia twice yeah so you do Ukraine Russia then Kazakhstan then back into Russia again right and then Russia into Mongolia would you do it again yeah 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 yeah, yeah. heartbeat Heartbeat. And I'd want to make it a bit more difficult. Well, I mean, br- quickly bringing that back to, to how you you're kind of on-ramped into that story. What was it like when it came to things like medicine? Because mm. if I'm right, insulin, you've got to keep it cold? Or yep. is that so? Yeah, so insulin has a, like a 30-day shelf life once it's outside of the fridge. So right. usually you take a pen out, and I use a pen in about a week. Um, but I was gone for eight weeks total, but six weeks driving. So we... Uh, we had a, a cool box that we wired into the car battery. Right. So every time the ignition was on, the cool box was a fridge, essentially. And I knew it had to stay on for at least uh, at least a month of the trip because then the incident would last the last month. Mm-hmm. So we nursed it through the kind of first four weeks. And then I had um, 
I'd bought a load of these little cool bags they use for keeping insulin cool where you wet them. They're like little gel um, packets that get really cold when they're wet and they last like 24 hours. So after the imp died and the cool box was kind of gone, I would then every hotel or every chance I got would soak these bags, keep all the insulin, just make sure it was as cold as it could be. And, and that was it. And that was fine. That got me to the end. Fair play. So you, you've always found a way around it then really when it comes to these things. Yeah. And, and you have to like when so um yeah yeah i mean you just have to adapt you can do in my opinion you can do everything and like i think through like the other adventures we'll talk about in a minute you just have to figure some stuff out you got to put a little bit of extra effort in compared to what someone who is you know doesn't have diabetes or whatever has to do but you can still have totally enjoy and have exactly the same experience you just got to put a little bit more effort in and then i guess it helps if your adventure happens to be taking a bike into the arctic circle yep so that was the next one, I think. Yeah, that was the next one. I remember the feeling I had when you told me about that. And I remember you were saying how this trip had never been done before and you were basically being sent out to, to test it. Mm -hmm. So it was like a new idea that someone cooked up in some office somewhere and went, oh, I reckon we've got an adventure where we'll drive... What, whatever these, what the, the little little scooters weren't they with a the sidecar? It was a Russian Ural motorbike, yeah, with a sidecar. The thing that freaked me out about it was the idea that you would essentially traverse like, and this isn't, it's not like you're driving through towns. You're driving through, you know, frozen wasteland mm -hmm. in minus whatever degrees. I'm sure you're going to tell us in a second. And it was a test. It wasn't something that someone had done and gone, oh yeah, this is the finish line. Do it. It was. It was this idea of there's a legitimate chance, like a really legitimate chance you were going to die. And I'm, I I'm interested in you telling the story about that adventure, especially when it comes to being diabetic and how you plan for it, but also the mentality of like, why you think you do this stuff, like what make, what drives you to go and do this? I had, I had a podcast with Serrano Fines uh, a couple of episodes ago and asking, asking the same question. It's like, why mm -hmm. so many people listen would be why would you even do that take a bike that you barely understand it's probably going to break down you're going to be in the middle of nowhere you're going to freeze to death on your own mm -hmm. why 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 put yourself through that i think there's two reasons to it. you want me to start with that or start with it? yeah i'll start with it. so i think there's two reasons why i like to do this stuff one if i'm brutally honest is ego if i'm brutally honest like doing something i can show off about like yeah no one's done this I've done something that no one else has done. Yeah, I look I'm how sure, cool I am. I'm sure not many people have died on their own in the middle of it. Well, no. I, and, and so that's the second part. So the first part is definitely, you know, it is what it is. It's like, yeah, I get to tell some cool stories like we're doing now. Um, but the second part is like, it's the challenge of it. Because the feeling at the time is miserable. Most of the time. But the feeling afterwards, like when you get to the finish line, when you finish, you're safe, you're done, retelling the stories and reminiscing about the, the amazing adventure you just had, that's addictive. That's an addictive feeling. And, and the story wouldn't be interesting if, well, I was sat in a nice warm 4x4, brand new, that was working great, and I drove up to the Arctic Circle. It's not as interesting as I was on a motorbike. It was minus 45. I was camping every night. Um, the bike barely worked. It was a 1970s Russian Ural, you know, and I had to spend hours fixing it and no one had done this route before. We were off-roading, we are off going up a frozen river. Like, it's all this crazy cool stuff that you just don't get to tell that story if you're in a, you know, a vehicle that's easy to do in, on terrain that's easy to do, you know, travelling around like that. It's not your backpacking around Europe. and So it's it's the challenge of not knowing whether or not you're going to die. Is part bit, of the excitement for you. It's like, that's the point. Can I overcome it? Yeah, because it's so dangerous. It's so dangerous, but it's not like, I'm going to jump off a building. Will I survive dangerous? There's a, you know, the odds are a bit more in your favor. Yeah, but, like, but it's definitely that. Can I do this without hurting myself? Or you know, can I complete this and then have cool stories to tell afterwards? So same question as asked before. Like, Run us through the, the general gambit of like what you were doing and then what what what's the story that you choose from your arctic circle Ural expedition so this the way this came about so the mongol rally when i did that i was i i paid to kind of do it and so the adventurists of this adventure company where you basically pay they give you a start line party and a finish line party and everything in the middle is up to you mm -hmm. there's no set route there's no whatever um <clears throat> and so this one I, when i finished the mongol rally i was chatting to tom the owner of the company in a, in a bar in in mongolia 
And I said, oh, you should do something with motorbikes. And he's like, I've been thinking about that. And he's like, would you be interested in, in, in doing it? And I was like, yeah, I'm down, just call me. And then like 18 months went by and I get a call out of the blue from Tom. He's like, I've got the motorbike adventure. I was like, okay, just tell me. <laughs> just <laughs> literally <laughs> just like that. Literally just like that. Yeah. Um, and he said, but I need someone to go test it and be like, the, do the Pioneers version and see if it can be completed. Yeah. Be um, the guinea pig. Get, exactly. Be the lamb pig. to the store. Exactly yeah. a guinea pig. Yeah. And so he explained it to me. He's who, thinking that. Who's dumb enough? <laughs> correct. <laughs> I, remember, I met this guy 18 months ago. Yeah, okay, right. Correct. So... Um, he explains it to me. It's basically going to start an ear bit, which is uh, where the Ural factory for the motorcycles is or was. And you're going to take an old Russian Ural that is going to break down and barely works up the frozen river Ob and off-road or whatever, and basically head north until you hit Salakard, which is like the last city before like the Arctic research centers and stuff. So it's right on the Arctic Circle. Um, you can do it in the middle of winter. It's going to be like minus 40, minus 45 you know, cold enough, borderline to freeze oil and fuel, uh, and there's no hotels. How so you're camping. How do you get around your fuel freezing? Light fires under the bike. No. In the well, morning. Light fires under the fuel. In tank. the morning, yeah. To warm everything up. <laughs> and you can only, and so the things with these bikes is the ignition system was the thing that failed consistently with them. It was, it was the worst part, I'm not going to geek out on it, but it's the worst parts of an ignition system taken from both a motocross bike and a normal motorcycle. Um, so there's timing and all this stuff, very fiddly things that need to be fixed and adjusted. And the temperature makes them go out of time, therefore the bike won't start. That's essentially... And I imagine your fingers are numb as hell, so you can barely... Well, you can only take your gloves off for about 45 seconds to a minute, really, max, before you can't feel them anymore. Jeez. Before you can't feel your fingers anymore. Yeah. So, like, so the work, the, the main... the the oh, I've got a few stories, but the, from that first trip, we had uh, gone down a wrong road. I say road, we've gone down a wrong track. And what we had, well, we had these GPS trackers on us. So the adventure company could basically Take come find us if we had died or if we stopped moving or whatever. Yeah. And so, but there was a login on the website. So you could see, you at home in England or whatever could see where I was. And my dad was on that constantly. And um, we'd got a bit lost. And I'd spoken to my dad on the phone. He was like, no, it looks like you're on the right road. You, mm. You're keep going the way you're going. Was that like through satellite? Uh, yeah, so the, the thing pings every like 10 minutes. Right up to a satellite and just plots your position uh-huh. on a map. So he was looking at that map. I didn't have the map. I didn't know where I was. Mm-hmm. Um, didn't have a map because that was part well, of the... No, 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 we had a physical map, but the, the, road, the roads aren't mapped. Yeah, yeah I, I imagine. So, so I, just... I could see the, like, the landscape and yeah. the rise and fall of the height of land and whatever, the, uh, what's it called, the topography. Topog- or, yeah. yeah. Um, but I didn't know where I was because on the map there was no road. Mm. Um, so dad's like, no, you're on, you're on the right road. Keep going that way. So we've been on it for like three or four days, the same road. And in that time, one of the we'd made a rule we weren't going to ride at night. And that went out the window pretty early on because sunrise was like 9 a.m. and sunset was like 5 p.m., 4 p.m. And um, one day it took us like 12 hours to get the bike started because they were so, it, one, it was so cold. So you think you have a minute at most to fiddle with what you're doing. Before and the then you have to do you. that. Yeah. Like warm your finger, like putting your hands in your armpits or put your gloves back on or whatever and warm up. So it took us all day. So we we're like, okay, we're going to ride at night. And we had this crazy ride down this track. And the road stopped being a road like kind of two days before. And it turned into just to a, an old, it was like two roads of like two foot wide concrete that was spaced a car's axle width apart. So like you had to keep, if you were driving a car, you'd have to keep the tires on both sides. But it was so old, all the concrete had cracked and was all jagged and like it wasn't flat at all. And it was also just a bit wider than the axle width of the Ural and the sidecar. So you could only either have the sidecar running in the snow in the middle of the two concrete tracks or the bike, one or the other. And so we're going down this track at night and it was like I I got off at one point to push the bike and the back wheel spam around as I over revved it. It ran up my shin, tore a load of skin off my shin. Um, Who else got injured? There's a few injuries uh, the group. So there's four of us that were doing this on two bikes. Because we, we if, if you have, if you end up getting off the bike, you crash, you hurt yourself badly. How long is it taking someone to get to you? Oh, that one would have probably been a helicopter. But like, it would have had to have been. But even, I don't know, hours a, if not. Oh, a day at least. A day. So you're just really out in bumfuck. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like you can hear wolves at night when you're setting up camp and. 
Yeah, it was it was mad. It was mad. And like when you put your tents up, you have to build a cold sump because it gets so cold. It's basically you you dig a ditch around your tent so the cold air floating along the ground kind of drops in that sump and helps keep you warm. And it was yeah, it was cold. <laughs> it was horrendous. But um, so we're on this road on this road anyway. We rode through the night and then um, <clears throat> oh that so and then so we we stop for a minute and I find one of these hand warmers. You know the ones you break apart or whatever and yeah. the non reusable ones in the middle of the track. So, oh guys, we must be on the right road because we started doubting ourselves because someone's dropped this. Yeah, someone's okay. one and it only would have been one of the Western lot using them. So like someone's dropped a thinger here and they've been here recently. It's sat on top of the snow. Okay, great. We're on the right. We're on the right track. And um, so we carry on going. And then the next day, Nick, who was one of the other guys with us, he says, um, I just had to tell you guys, that hand warmer was mine I'd, when you were fixing the bike. So oh. I'd, I'd, wa- I'd walked up ahead trying to find help. Why didn't he say that? I don't time? know. He, he didn't say it at the time, told us the next day. So we would got all excited. Then we were on the right road. So we did another day's worth of riding up this wrong path, unbeknownst to us. Because my dad's still like, yeah, you're on the right road. What it turned out was my dad was looking at a road that was about kind of 20 miles to the uh, west of us that ran parallel. There was an actual road that was going to like one of the, one of the small uh, villages. We were on an old logging trail that had been, not been used for like 40 years. And um, so we're stuck. And so it got to like day five or six. We're pretty much out of fuel. We were out of food. Um, and we were, we got up in the morning and we were like, we're leaving the bikes. We, we were just going to abandon the bikes. We were all going to shrink down a smaller backpack each and go off on foot and walk back the way we came to try and get back to, you know. In the middle of the Arctic Circle. Mm-hmm. Like, mm-hmm. Yeah. In now, the, like, run me through that because maybe I'm just jumping to conclusions, but I'm sure a lot of people listening would be thinking the same. Surely to walk back that distance with no food mm-hmm. would take days yeah. and the chances that you were going to survive that would be i mean yeah the only thing we had in our favor was that we you know we had the warm we had the right clothing and stuff so we could stay warm and we had shelter and obviously you melt the snow so you can have water we had fire starters so you know you can do without food but uh, and we had access to water so it was it was fine so that was what we were preparing ourselves for so we we're all shrinking down our bags we were getting prepared to leave a load of stuff there were you not were you not bricking it when that was happening i was more annoyed and fed up i think than uh, than bricking it i don't remember really being scared i was more frustrated that we hadn't completed it which i guess goes back to your original question on why do i do it is because i want to complete it and finish something that is deemed really difficult without dying without dying or losing a limb or losing a limb and like with everything in life that i do i'm like i get annoyed if i don't complete something properly i heard uh <laughs> one of the things that serrano fines told me was about when you're going for piss because people which is apparently is a common thing like, dick check <laughs> yeah piss, you gotta do dick check and they, they, if they don't like do their flies up properly mm-hmm. And they don't tuck their dick back in. Dick it, falls it off. can literally freeze yep. off. And it happens quick enough that mm-hmm. you barely notice. You won't even know. So you so you were in so many layers um, that you can't even see down there, right? You've got you got like three pairs of trousers on. Um, anyway, so you're lucky if you don't piss inside one of the one <laughs> right. of the pairs of yeah. trousers. Um, for a minute though, so. But yeah, you have to just turn around to one of your guys and go, if I put my dick away. That's brilliant. They have to do a dick check to make sure you've actually tucked it back in. Because otherwise, because you've got all these layers of coats on yeah, as yeah. well. Um, and that goes back to another thing we were talking about earlier with the diabetes. When I first got out there, I spent a day just uh, with a thermometer checking the layers of each coat and jacket I was wearing to see where the right temperature was that my insulin wouldn't freeze yeah, nor it would get yeah. too warm. Gotcha. So it was like the second coat in on the inside pocket is where my insulin would live. Because I knew it wouldn't freeze and it wouldn't get too hot. And so I did that little... But that little thing, it took a bit of extra time out of my day. Mm. But then I was able to do the journey just like everyone else. And it was it was fine. And what would have happened when you talk about like this... Well, Because we'll go back to this point where you, yeah. you're out of food. You're thinking about going on yeah. foot. What happens if you don't have insulin? What happens if the vial breaks? What happens if you find yourself in a situation where you don't have it? Like, how does it work? How long have you got... I mean, well, if you've not got any food, it doesn't really matter because you've not got. There's no reason to inject if you're not eating. So you only inject insulin when you're eating. Yeah, Sorry for well, the stupid question. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So when your blood, basically when your blood sugar goes high, which is caused mm. by eating, you put insulin in to make sure it stays level. So, 
assuming that you that you still had some food then it, how like what's the situation so once you once you lose your insulin and once you don't have mm-hmm. any insulin you're not eating any food is basically what you're saying that's the rule well you're you're kind of burning stuff as well i mean i don't know what i would have done in that situation i think you have to eat if you've got food because mm-hmm. it'd be silly not to but if your blood sugar level gets too high then you can go into the opposite of a hypo where it goes too low and you can go into like a coma or whatever um the other way, just whatever. Just going just whatever. But but it take for me. I think my pancreas still works slightly. That I'm I can cover a bit. You know, if I ate, especially if you eat like proteins and lettuce and stuff, it's fine. But it's the carbohydrates. I would have steered clear of chocolate and sugar, especially. Maybe like a sandwich would have kept me going and wouldn't have made my blood sugar go too high, depending on what was inside it. But um, not that that mattered because we bought a loaf of bread the first day and it froze solid and turned into a brick. So we soon realised we couldn't buy we couldn't buy bread. Because it was like literally a block of ice. It was only good for hitting ten pegs in. <laughs> <laughs> so, so what happens? What happens when you're getting pre- prepared to go on foot? Then, how does that story round up? Okay, so <clears throat> it's the morning of I think it was day six or day seven out out on this one road, and um, we everyone's just packing their bags down. Everyone was pretty quiet, mm. and we ate the last pretty much the last of our food. We like cooked up porridge or whatever we were having, and then we hear an engine. And I'm like, what? What the fuck? And I was all of a sudden we're all very excited to like what is that and where is it coming from and how do we go get their attention? And we hear it coming from the same direction we'd been coming from. And it's this big um what do they call it? An Urag or something, a big four by four kind of van. And these three Russian guys jump out and in I'm assuming what they said in Russian was, What the fuck are you <laughs> lot doing here? Because it was the most random thing, these four haggard British guys that are just like Thank God you're here. Please help us. Um, turns out they were out hunting. They were out on a wolf hunt um, in their van and they'd been out sleeping in this thing that was built for being in the Arctic and had like a separate generator for being warm and all that kind of stuff. And so they didn't speak a lick of English. We didn't know enough Russian that we could really explain, but the bike's kaput and they figured that out. They had a look at it. Obviously, couldn't fix it either. So um, they... Uh, they towed our two motorbikes, carried on going up this track for, I think we did another day. We did it all, all that day. So we by, by nightfall. How many, how many cars and other vehicles had you seen in the six, seven days? None. Do you not look back at that and think that that's like some form of divine intervention? Yeah, I mean, that was... That, because I, I, just from understanding the geography and how, like the distances you're talking about, you never make that by foot. You never, like, you're dead in the water. I mean, well, people walk to the Arctic Circle and walk to the the South Pole and stuff. Uh, it's it's doable. <laughs> Probably doable, but also dying is quite possible yes. as well. Oh, for sure. So you, and just, just by chance, at exactly the right moment, mm-hmm. this... We were still with the bikes. We hadn't set off. We were just kind of, fi- we just finished our breakfast and we're getting ready to literally put backpacks on and start walking. So lucky. Yeah. And so they towed us up the rest of this road and there was a little logging village that we got to at nightfall. They went to the police station with us. The police, there's one police officer that works in the whole village. He let us in. We slept on the floor of the police station that night. Um, and then the next day, the policeman helped us organize a logging truck that was heading to a little town north of the logging place where we put the bikes on the truck. And he said, there's a mechanic in this village. And so the next day, we put the bikes on a truck. We all were in the back of the truck, freezing just because you kind of couldn't even move around back there. Like literally I remember I was laying down underneath our bike and every time we hit a bump, because it's not a road, it's all off-roading. Yeah. Every time we hit a bump, the like bike suspension would like bash on. I had a huge bruise on my left butt cheek from where I was laying underneath this bike. And we eventually get to this next village and get dropped off uh, at this hotel. And I'm like, what do we... And I say hotel, but I use that term very loosely. Um, what do we do? And these random two guys came over who were in some Russian motorcycle chapter that lived in this village and um, wanted to help us. And they, they, we, they, we, they took us to their house. They towed our bikes for us on their car. Went, went to the house. They cooked us lunch, got our bikes in their garage. They had all the tools. And they started helping us fix And they had their motorbikes there as well. They just ride in the summer. And they get our bikes fixed and help us out. And, and then we're off on our way again from there. It's unreal yeah. how lucky it is. And also, I guess the the natural camaraderie you'd have to have when you're out in those more isolated, deserted places because, you know, 
one minute it's you getting rescued and the next it's them and it must be a much tighter community of people out in those kind of mm-hmm. yeah everywhere is super helpful because i mean it's i mean i tell you what though it puts into perspective is how um not well kind of weak but like how in western civilization we're a bit wimpy or a lot of people are a bit wimpy like there are old ladies that you know we're talking like 80 year old 90 year old ladies in minus 45 just shuffling across the ice going to the shop to go and get their bread or whatever they're getting shuffling back again not complaining just cracking on they've got to get their log fire going to heat their little house and you know just getting on with it and everyone helps everyone and it's um is yeah again really nice people didn't really have i mean there's there's oh i mean i didn't tell you about the gun thing with the arm wrestling I didn't tell you I don't that think story. You've never told me that story. That's a fun thing about doing this because obviously we're mates, but like yeah. doing this in such a way is kind of interesting because you kind of. So what's the, what's the gun? So thing? before we even started the trip, so we're in this tiny hotel in Earbit. Um, Earbit is Earbit is in the Ural Mountains. Okay, it's a town in the Ural Mountains. Where in the, Russia, in Russia, yeah, right. where we start the the trip. And so we got there a few days earlier because we were seeing how the bikes work and learning how to ride on the ice properly mm. and all that kind of stuff. And. Um, no one in Earbit has ever met an English person, right? So no one speaks English at all. All the menus are in Cyrillic and there's no like pictures or anything. It's like, oh, how do we order food? So we're in like the hotel bar trying to order food. And so we got the the girl that worked there kind of got used to me and Mark and Rob and Nick doing like animal impressions right. for basically, oh, we want chicken. So we go like, like, anyway, so one of the nights we're in there, we're having a few drinks and these young Russian guys. I like to think that they could all speak English, but just enjoyed the, enjoyed. <laughs> I kind of hope so too, thinking back. Um, so these young Russian guys come into the hotel bar to have a drink. It's really the only bar in town. And um, they hear us talk. Um, they One of them spoke a little bit of English and they're trying to get us into arm wrestle with them. I'll come and arm wrestle with us. Like, oh, no, thank you. It's fine. It's like, and he gets his gun out and puts his gun on the table. Now, bear in mind this time, I've not lived in America. I'm not used to guns. I don't even have my shotgun license I have in England. Like, not used to seeing guns. Probably like one of the first handguns I've ever seen. And uh, I'm like, oh, fuck. And it's, at this point, it's just me and Mark downstairs still. So Mark was my friend from Scot- well, like, when Scotland. You, when you got it out, was it intended to be intimidating was yeah like, oh, right. well that was the impression like i really want to arm wrestle that was the impression right, it gave okay. so um so me and obviously again i was like fighting fit at this time in my life and uh, mark was with this huge scottish sheep farmer like super strong dude and we're like okay so we go over and then our idiotic competitive streak kicks in and fuck this guy's gun. I'm going to beat him. So okay. <laughs> me and Mark start beating him in that in an arm wrestle. And then they start ordering vodka shots and making us drink the vodka shots and then arm wrestling us again. I'm like, okay. And we do all the arm wrestling. And then the guy's like, he loses. to I think he lost to Mark again. And then he goes, we go outside and picks his gun up. And we're like, oh, fuck, we're going to get shot. <laughs> and I, <laughs> I'm like, oh, god damn. I thought the things I wanted. This is how I go. Yeah. Right? So arm wrestling competition gone wrong. Yeah, so we go outside with the guy, but it turns out he just really likes us, and so he sets a load of beer bottles up on a snow pile in the car park of the hotel, gives us the gun, and lets us just start shooting at these glass bottles. And we're like, "Is this okay?" And he goes, "Yes," and he like mag dumps his nineteen eleven he had into the into the snowbank in the middle of a town, and no one's nope. Nope. No one said a word. And then we're like, okay. So we were like shooting his gun in so these glass bottles. Yeah. A handgun, yeah. That is mad. Yeah. And um, anyway, that was just a quick side story. I forgot I'd not told you that. So that was kind of people that we're meeting. And the and then when we say about the adventures and the stories, is that kind of the stuff that you remember? You're like, yeah, that was, that was cool. That is crazy. And also very telling in terms of how free... A lot of play. I mean, for good or for, for better or for worse, but yeah. for him to just trust a couple of random Westerners going, yeah, come on, let's go shoot. And yeah, that's crazy. So that's so anyway. That was that throwback. So then, but yeah, so we we got the bikes fixed and and we finished the trip. It took us about two weeks in all. Um, and yeah, we were a group of I think there was ten of us out there total. Um, that did we all complete it? I don't think everyone completed it. Um, and there was four of us, two motorbikes. Well, so you managed to get the bikes fixed, and then you still went for the finish mm-hmm. line. Mm-hmm. Oh wow! So we got. So up, you didn't turn back. You went. You, well, you went and completed. Yeah, the we got up to Salakard, which is in the Arctic Circle, and we got up there. Um, what did it? What did it feel like when you finally crossed that finish line? And you. We got in at like three a.m. because what was weird? So we were on this like snow road, 
um, and we could see the lights of the town because it's a fairly big town. It's the last point that all kind of shipping containers and stuff will stop at before they go. You know, there's, there are trucks on like an ice road that goes, there's one ice road that goes there that we weren't on, but that's where the trucks all go to deliver stuff up to the Arctic and go to research centers and mm-hmm. the little villages and stuff are up there. And so um, we see the lights and we're like, oh, we're nearly there. We'll be there in an hour. And we're like, an hour goes by. And it's like, I don't think we're any closer. And then another hour goes by. And it's like 8 p.m. And then, yeah, it took us till 3 a.m. to get there. And we also started to get reckless. So, like, I'm just pinning the throttle wide open on the Ural. Like, I just want to get there. And I'll never forget, because <laughs> Nick, who was in the other, on the other bike, explained it to me. He, they were just behind us. And all of a sudden, our bike just disappears. And I hadn't seen a six-foot drop in this snow track because everything's white, right? And it's late. You've got no idea of gradients, texture, whatever. And so I've just jumped our Ural six-foot. Bear in mind, it's loaded down with bags and two people and all that, whatever. And, yeah, we just jumped off this thing and crashed down in this ditch um, and carried on going. We're like, it's banging a bit now, Ollie, from Rob. I'm like... Still going, I think it's fine. <laughs> we just carried on going the rest of the way, and we get in at 3 a.m. and we're just so happy. All we want to do is eat and have a hot shower because it's been whatever two weeks since. Because you just don't wash; it's so cold. And like Mark had these wet wipes with him, he was like, "Yeah, I'll just I'll wash with these." They froze solid within two hours of leaving the first thing. Again, it was all only good for hitting ten pegs in. And um, but yeah, so that was the first time I did Siberia and did the Arctic. Was that trip? I just think um, the the really cool thing about this is bringing it right back to that 17-year-old kid who was diagnosed, not sure, a bit confused about what was going to come up. The doctor who told you you're never going to you mm-hmm. know, get an office job, don't, don't do it. I think it's such a nice place to come to. And I, and I know that there's probably even more adventure stories that are going to come down the line and i'm sure we're going to do this every you know every once in a while but that's that's the that's the thing in this episode i really wanted to land and i hope that for people listening i can only imagine what it must have been like i know your attitude was very nonchalant and i know you you you, you sort of say yeah fuck it i'm just going to crack on and do what i want to do but but there would have been an element of like being freaked out and being unsure and for people people that young especially being diagnosed i hope that they have someone they can listen to and, and be like, you know what, I can, I can do anything I well, want to do. Well, that, that trip is what started the diabetic adventurer, which was a whole thing I came up with after, afterwards. It was like, because I, I started talking, it was actually a, uh, someone I worked with, their daughter, got di- a 14-year-old daughter got diagnosed with diabetes after I got back from the ice run. And, uh, Same they, kind of thing, just total luck of the draw. Yeah, just, parents yeah. didn't have it, just totally out of nowhere. And so they asked me to just go talk to her, and I did, and and realized one that like the british i don't know maybe across the board but the british medical system was not the most helpful especially for young diabetics and it freaks them out and like my life's ruined and what am i going to do and and so i felt like talking to her i was like well this has genuinely helped and her parents told me well thank you so much for talking to her because she's now got a whole different view on things and so i came up with this idea of the diabetic adventurer and i'd worked with jdrf and diabetes uk as the charities I'd raised money for on the Mongol Rally and the Ice Run. And so I reached out to them. I was like, I'd, I'd like to kind of go out and tell my story and tell people what I do, whether it's the stunt work and the adventure stuff, and kind of talk to kids and young adults and their parents. Mm-hmm. Like, here's all this stuff I've done. And just by adapting slightly, you know, compared to what a person without diabetes would, would do, I've been able to do all this stuff and live this life and not, you know... Be, apart from my naivety and in testing my blood when I was younger but it, as a whole it's but not that's also me. part of it isn't it yeah. is you get to say look I've managed to do this stuff but I've also done this stuff wrong early on and that I might might yeah. have changed looking back yeah exactly so that I started the diabetic adventurous then I was going around and talking at kind of um, diabetic wards and children's diabetic wards in, in the UK to parents teenagers young kids five year olds about you know a show on slideshows and everything I've been doing and then that led on to doing more adventures with the adventurists. Mm-hmm. You know, I went, I went out to Siberia and the Arctic another three times and I went to India and went across India and, you know, the, girl, the story with the girls out there in India. I went to Zanzibar and Tanzania and did a boat race that I filmed and I'm jumping in bull shark infested water with a camera. And Well, the one that I'm looking forward to going through when we chat next time is the time you got kidnapped in, was it 
Tanz or your friends got kidnapped. I'm trying I'm to remember. I'm in Tanzania, yeah. I mean, because I'm not going to, I don't, don't want to open this one up now because I, I know I'm going to start wrapping up this episode, but I'm looking forward to, to doing this with you again. And, and most importantly, having this down as, as something that I, ho- I hope does some good out there. You know, mm-hmm. I'm, I'm hopefully going to run some promotions on this and get it out to the sort of market online where, you know, people might be able to find this. And just like the talks you did to that young girl, uh, hopefully, you know, you can be uh, maybe a bit more of a positive guiding mm-hmm. guiding um, light to a lot of a lot of people out there. So yeah, I, people can reach out to me on um, a best way. I get people messaging me all the time on at the Diabetic Adventurer on Instagram, and then I'll, I'll reply to any messages. People want to know anything or ask questions or advice or whatever, then send me a message on there, and I can I can respond. Game on. Well, I'm looking forward to more adventures next time, Ollie. Thank you very much for being on this thank episode, you, mate. and I will see you again very very soon. Yes. Nice. Cheers, mate. That was such a great episode. Good. That was such a great episode. Good. I reckon...